Violetta, marked as a fallen woman by society, makes the ultimate sacrifice. She pushes away the man she loves most to save his reputation and to protect his family from ruin. I'm Naomi Baratera. Today, Verdi's La Traviata. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. During the highly productive middle period of his career, Verdi created some of his most enduringly popular operas, including what might be his most beloved work, La Traviata. Today, we have Peter Allen in a Talking About Opera lecture recorded in 1989, exploring this tragic love story that has captured the hearts of opera-goers for over 150 years. In 1844, Giuseppe Verdi wrote to a friend, I don't like prostitutes on the stage. A few years later, in 1853, he composed his loving portrait of a prostitute, La Traviata. More than one opera lover has pondered the question, what caused Verdi to change his mind? This is Peter Allen talking about La Traviata in the series Talking About Opera, sponsored by the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and I'm not about to propose an answer to that question, since the only one who could answer it if he could, is Verdi himself. Verdi has left us strong clues, but they neglect a debated aspect of the question, how close to Verdi's own life is this opera about a woman gone astray, Traviata, as the heroine calls herself in the last act of the opera. As he was composing La Traviata, Verdi said he looked for subjects that are bold to the extreme. Two years earlier, Rigoletto had been called obscene by the censors, but had met tremendous success. The censors had objected, among much else, to an ugly hunchback as the title character. But that was exactly what Verdi liked. In his words, putting on the stage a character who seems grossly deformed and absurd, but inwardly is passionate and full of love. Following Rigoletto came the also stupendously successful Il Trovatore, which Verdi was completing even as he was beginning Traviata. Critics are perpetually astonished that two such wildly different stories, with such appropriately different music, were in Verdi's mind at the same time. But they also point out striking parallels in the two operas. For Verdi... A strong attraction of Trovatore was another unconventional subject, a half-demented old gypsy woman brooding over vengeance for her martyred mother and love for her surrogate son, and roaming through 15th century Spain. Verdi's next subject was an elegant prostitute of 19th century Paris. Verdi called La Traviata a subject of our time, and indeed he was severely criticized for having chosen the subject too much of its time, a time, it was felt, in which the realism that was so strong in French literature of the day was corrupting society. The critic Abramo Bassetti, writing about La Traviata just four years after its premiere, pointed out that writers like Stendhal and George Sand had not merely excused illicit love, but had attacked the institution of marriage itself. Previously, lamented Basevi, it was felt that a single act of sin could blacken a hitherto pure life. But these new authors, he said, were proclaiming that a sinful love, if sincere, could redeem a vicious life. And Verdi, by clothing that thought in his beautiful music, was, said Basevi, even guiltier of immorality. When Traviata came to London, It was greeted with words like repulsive, trash, foul, hideous, loathsome. It was allowed on stage in London because it was sung in Italian and so its indecencies would not be understood. 
When it was sung in English in Chicago in 1885, the Tribune thanked the considerate soprano who, quote, relapsed into Italian in all the wicked parts. Verdi could hardly have been surprised at such criticism. The French play on which he based the opera had been banned in London and banned earlier in Paris until a change of government allowed it to be staged. The celebrated play was The Lady with the Camellias, La Dame aux Camellias, which is also the name of the novel on which the play was based. On stage, La Dame aux Camellias was the most popular play of the entire 19th century. Verdi was in Paris on the day of its sensational premiere in 1852. He was living there with a remarkable young woman named Giuseppina Strepponi, who had had a brief career as a brilliant soprano. Strepponi, as we'll see, is often compared with the heroine of the play. Fascinating as Strepponi was, even more fascinating to Parisians was the model for La Dame aux Camélias, the beautiful, young, and uniquely admired courtesan Marie Duplessis, who died in Paris in 1847, only a few months before Verdi came to Paris for the first time and found that he liked its easy-going ways. Marie was a girl from the farm, but when she died at the age of 23, fashionable men and women, among them Charles Dickens, trooped to her exquisitely furnished apartment to admire and to buy. Her hairbrush was said to have been sold for its weight in gold. The inventory list of her happy creditors included precious tapestries, rare objects of art, and an impressive library. Soon after her death, Marie Duplessis was made the heroine of La Dame aux Camélias, which is in print even today at several publishers. In English, the play and the famous Garbo movie version of it are called Camille, and the author is the younger Alexander Dumas, the son of the hugely successful author of romantic novels like The Three Musketeers. The son, at the age of 24, with his realistic novel and then the play, achieved a renown matching that of his father. The young man's novel, dashed off in three weeks, was bold, well-written, and moving. But no small part of its impact came from a fact that everyone in Paris knew. Its hero was modeled on the author himself, and its plot was inspired by his love for Marie. The young Alexander Dumas gave the hero his own initials with the name Armand Duval. He named his heroine Marguerite Gautier. As you would expect, there are many differences between life and the novel, between novel and play, and between play and opera. But central to them all is a uniquely charming, consumptive young woman. Two years before Verdi wrote La Traviata, a man of letters named Jules Janin wrote a frequently quoted preface to Dumas' novel. Janin had met Marie several times, and his preface is a loving portrait in words, amusingly overblown, but still more than supported by the words of others who knew her. After her death, the newspapers for weeks competed with phrases like miraculous beauty, indefinable but genuine air of chastity, instinctive refinement, no coarse expression ever passed her lips. All those words are strongly reinforced by a striking portrait in oil. With her long, dark ringlets, she's like the contemporary noblewomen painted by Angra, but with a more mysterious charm. If today we smile a bit as we read Janin, it's well to remember that his words were widely enjoyed in Paris before Verdi wrote the opera. Janin writes, She was a young and beautiful person who attracted merely by her presence, a certain admiration mingled with deference. Just from watching her walk, one would have said, obviously, either a courtesan or a duchess. Farther on he writes, Her beautiful face, oval and pale, matched the grace that emanated from her like an indescribable perfume. Once in a crowded theater lobby, after her mere entrance astonished everyone, 
She surprised both Janin and a young pianist named Franz Liszt, neither of whom had ever spoken to her before, by coming up to them familiarly and telling Liszt his playing had made her dream. As she talked, Liszt paid close attention, for she was a woman of wit, taste, and good sense. I can't tell you, writes Janin, with what art, what tact, what infinite taste, Liszt ranged through with this woman whose name he did not know, the whole gamut of vulgar speech and the most elegant flourishes of conversation. It has been thought by other writers that Liszt was the only man Marie ever loved. Liszt, for his part, said of her, practices commonly held to be corrupt never touched her soul. Jeannin does not mention her successive protectors like the wealthy young Duc de Guiche or the wealthy old Count Stackelberg or the young Count Perigot who secretly married her not long before her final illness, but Jeannin does tell us that the doctors at a health resort said they had rarely met such a combination of resignation and courage. Jeannin tells us two pearls she wore would make a queen jealous. In her hair, diamonds and flowers. In her hand, a bouquet whose color he can't recall. And nowhere does he mention camellias, which could be a pleasant subtlety or something else. Although there are camellias in stone on Marie's impressive tomb in Montmartre. It seems she was never called the Lady of the Camellias in her lifetime, and it's suspected by some that the Camellia in the famous painting of her was added after her death. The Camellias in the novel are, as Camellias, unnecessary except partly as a clever title and partly as a device to shock his readers. For in the novel, Dumas pretends not to know why, Marguerite displays for her admirers Red camellias, not white, for a few days every month. That detail, as we'll see, was quite easily changed in both play and opera, although some directors have silently placed a vase of red camellias on stage in the first act. But it's an example of just one kind of change in the transformations of the story. We are dealing, in truth, with five different heroines. There is the real Marie Duplessis, whom Dumas knew, there is the Marguerite Gautier of the novel, whom Dumas seems to make more vulgar than the real Marie. There is the Marguerite of the play, less vulgar than in the novel. There is the Violetta Valérie of the opera's libretto, not at all vulgar. And, as we'll hear in a moment, still another Violetta, the Violetta of Verdi's music. For Verdi gives us immediately, in the prelude to La Traviata, the most delicate portrait of all. Before we've heard a single word of the opera, it begins... this first theme of the prelude, Verdi uses nothing but 16 violins, and, rare in Italian opera, he divides them into four sections playing that simple, transparent melody that speaks of melancholy and vulnerability and even of yearning. a melancholy and vulnerability and yearning that later will be recalled only too appropriately. The second theme of the prelude is broadly gracious and even tranquil. It will be heard later only once, sung by Violetta, and perhaps the most poignant, pleading cry in opera. Mm -hmm. 
That theme is taken over by other instruments as the violins shift to a frivolous facet of Violetta's character, but perhaps pensive as if in memory. Prelude ends, Morendo dying away, and then Act One begins. The curtain has risen on a lavish party where the hostess, Violetta, is chatting with a sympathetic Dr. Granville who, sadly, will play a more active role in the final scene. With unobtrusive skill, Verdi's librettist Francesco Piave quickly gives us quite a bit of information. Late arrivals explain that they were gambling at her friend Flora's, and in Act Two we'll see gambling at Flora's that is both significant and dramatic. Violetta welcomes the guests, but they ask if she is well enough to be partying. Pleasure, she says, is the drug that eases her suffering. Her friend, the young Viscount Gastone, presents a new admirer, Alfredo Germont. Gastone tells Violetta that Alfredo thinks of her constantly. When she was ill, he rushed to her door every day to ask about her. Violetta finds it hard to believe, but she teases another admirer, Baron Dufault, for showing less devotion. When he protests he's known her only a year, she points out that for Alfredo, it's been only a few minutes. Not a vulgar word is spoken, and in fact, Piave's libretto gives Violetta a reference to classical mythology. She'll pour the wine, she says, like Hebe, who the 19th century audience was expected to know was the cupbearer of the gods. Alfredo is up to the occasion in both gallantry and erudition, he wishes her, unaware of the irony, immortality like Hebe's. The Baron is unable to think of a toast, but if Violetta would like it, Alfredo is ready. He sings a drinking song with an infectious exuberance that has made it famous. Let's drink. Libiamo. Libiamo, libiamo negli edi carici che la bellezza infiora e la Fuggevo, fuggevo l'ora, si è via voluta. It's a drinking song with a difference, not just a solo. It becomes both a choral waltz and, remarkably, part of a dramatic dialogue in which Violetta expresses her philosophy of life. Everything that isn't pleasure is folly. And the chorus agrees when she calls, Let's enjoy ourselves. Good job. pulses on, Violetta and Alfredo alternate line by line. Life, she says, is only revelry. Alfredo counters, when you're not yet in love. Don't say that to one who doesn't know it. That's my destiny. <laughs> Now the guests here an offstage band, the Banda. 
Verdi is often criticized for the banality of his Banda music, but Julian Budden, early in his admirable three-volume study of Verdi's operas, points out that the function of Banda music is, quote, purely scenic. It is not meant to be listened to and judged seriously as music. Even so, Ernest Newman finds the Banda's waltz to be sparkling. Most of the first act is in waltz time, one of the happiest acts in all of Verdi. The guests ask what the banda music is for, and they gladly accept Violetta's invitation to go into the next room and dance. But as they leave, Violetta hesitates, pale and trembling. She tells the others to go on, which they do, all but Alfredo. As the waltz continues off stage, he tells her she is killing herself. If she were his, he would take care of her. He loves her. Violetta laughs and asks, skeptically, How long has this been going on? For a year, he says. One happy day, undi felice, she appeared before him, radiant and ethereal. And since that day, he has trembled with undeclared love, di quel amor of that love, which is the pulse, palpito, of the entire universe, mysterious, noble, both the cross and the delight of the heart. Croce delizia al cor. Violetta answers with brilliant frivolity, but at the same time with honest good sense. Ah, if that's true, flee from me. I can't love. Forget me. It's positively painful for me to leave out the rest of this duet in which their contrasting lines blend in a melting cadenza. But Verdi has poured out so many marvels of both melody and technique in La Traviata that to play only the highlights and to comment in detail on them would take, I'm sure, triple the length of the whole opera. Benjamin Britten said that after hearing Traviata a dozen times in quick succession, he felt he was just beginning to appreciate it. Di Quel Amor, which Alfredo has just sung, is perhaps the main theme of the opera, and more than one observer has remarked on its similarity to that second theme of the prelude, a similarity especially noticeable in the first notes. We'll hear Di Quellamore again soon. It's been called a leitmotif of the opera, but the prelude theme itself, as I said, will later be a poignant cry from Violetta. Before we hear Di Quellamore again, Violetta tells Alfredo, no more talk of love. He simply starts to leave. She sees he's serious, and so she gives him a flower. Why? To bring it back when it has wilted. Tomorrow, and he leaves, 
ecstatically happy. Henry James spoke of feeling in Dumas' play the springtime of life. Verdi must have felt something close to that when he came to the beginning of his second act, set in a country house near Paris. Some directors have tried to evoke even more of the springtime feeling by playing this scene in a garden, but it's often pointed out that this is the only opera Verdi set entirely indoors. The room in the libretto has French windows onto a garden, from which Alfredo enters and in a happy recitative tells us he's been living here for three months with Violetta, who has given up the luxury and party-going of her previous life for him. His life is now heavenly, his aria tells us, because Violetta's love has calmed the youthful ardor of my bubbling spirits, de miei bolenti spiriti. But he is thunderstruck to learn from the maid, Anina, that Violetta is selling her horses, carriages, everything, to pay for this idyllic life. He resolves to go to Paris and raise the money himself. He tells Anina not to say anything, and sings a cabaletta of remorse, which is frequently cut as too conventional and too heroic for the situation, but is also frequently defended. Without the cabaletta, Alfredo is less admirable, and without it, the music just before the cabaletta builds to nothing. Oh, my remorse, O oh shame, O oh mio rimorso, O oh infamia. Oh mio rimorso infamia, io vissi dall'errore, ma il curve sono affrancerà, il rimpallerò. He leaves, and Violetta comes in with papers in her hands. We hear fewer embellishments in Violetta's vocal lines in all the rest of the opera. Rather, some of the most flowing and moving music Verdi ever wrote. Anina says Alfredo will be back soon. Another servant brings an invitation to Flora's that evening. Violetta throws it on the table and laughs. But now begins the tense pivotal scene of the opera with the arrival of Alfredo's father, Giorgio Germont. In this scene, Violetta will be slowly forced from strength, not to weakness, but to defeat. And Germont will move from harshness to sympathy. But that very sympathy will help him to persuade Violetta, will become a weapon in his victory. He attacks at once. Mademoiselle Valerie, I am the father of the boy you are bewitching and ruining. But he is immediately impressed by a lesson in manners. I am a woman in my own home, sir. Allow me to leave you more for your sake than for mine. Yet, you've made a mistake. He wants to give you all his property. He hasn't dared yet, and I would refuse it. But all this luxury. Violetta astonishes him by showing him the bills of sale in her hand. Even in his growing sympathy, he unrelentingly presses the attack. Ah, why does the past accuse you? God has canceled the past because of my repentance and my love. But Germont does not let up. Even as he praises her nobility, he asks of her nobility... A sacrifice which Violetta had feared all along. She knew she was too happy. Oh, 
Germont tells her he is pleading for his two children. He also has a daughter, pure as an angel, pura si come un angelo. If Alfredo does not leave Violetta, the daughter's marriage will not take place. Violetta, painful though it will be, says she will leave Alfredo for a while. But that's not enough. It must be forever. No! Don't you know, non sapete, my burning love, Alfredo has sworn to be everything. Don't you know I'm ill, and the end is near? But Germont tells her, you're young and beautiful, and in time, oh no, I want to love only him. Perhaps, but man is often fickle. One day, undi quando le venere, when all your loveliness is overcome by time, boredom will rise, and then, unblessed by marriage, what will there be? As he continues... Violetta can only whisper, It's true, è vero. God has inspired, says Germont, these words of a father. So sings Violetta to herself, for the miserable creature who one day fell, hope of rising again, is mute. Speranza di risorgere è muta. And the melody is a tortured version of Alfredo's love theme, Di Quell'Amor. Approaching what Julian Button has called perhaps the finest moment of the opera, Ah, dite alla giovine, si bella e pura, sings Violetta, tell the young girl so beautiful and pure. Button praises Verdi's utmost simplicity here and says that although dite alla giovine is, quote, an orthodox duet cantabile, the melody could only have come from La Traviata, nowhere in Italian opera, he writes, is grief more beautifully transfigured than here? Tell the young girl there was a victim of misfortune who sacrificed to her the one ray of hope she had. 
and will die. Mora. Germain, but he still asks the sacrifice, saying she will be rewarded by heaven. Violetta asks him for strength, embrace me as a daughter, and she begs him to comfort Alfredo. Beverly Sills has pointed out in conversation that the role of Violetta is an accommodating one. As in the film with Robert Taylor, Garbo can seem the older of the two. Yes, mature. Even in defeat, this woman is resourceful, courageous, decisive. She has a plan she'll keep secret, she says Germain would object to it, and she asks simply that one day Alfredo be told of her sacrifice. Germain goes out to wait in the garden, and she writes a letter accepting, we later realize, Flora's invitation, and then one to Alfredo. He returns, preoccupied with a severe letter from his father, who, he says, is expected at once. Violetta quickly replies, as we join this powerful scene, Don't let him surprise me, non me sorprenda. I'll leave while you calm him. Then I'll throw myself at his feet. He won't want to separate us. We'll be happy because you love me, don't you, Alfredo? Non è vero? Don't you? Oh, so much, but why are you crying? I needed tears. Now, see, I'm smiling. I'll wait among the flowers, near you always, sempre, sempre. Love me, ama me, Alfredo, the great theme from the prelude. Love me as I love you. Goodbye. That tremendous outburst of love and pain merely leaves Alfredo convinced of how lucky he is, and as he waits for his father, he idly picks up a book and reads a bit. We know only from Dumas that it was a novel important to Marguerite Gautier and Armand Duval 
Manon Lescaut, the story of a young courtesan who returned to her profession. Alfredo puts the book down and is about to go and see who's approaching in the garden, but a messenger brings a letter from Violetta. He reads aloud just the opening, Alfredo, when this reaches you, and he cries out in astonishment and rage. He turns and sees his father, who embraces his weeping son and sings to console him the famous Di Provenza il Mar il Suol, of Provence, the sea, the land, which once was called the great song of the opera, but also has been called almost embarrassing in its sentimentality. Who has erased the happy memory of your birthplace? Come back to Provence, where your absence has made me suffer in shame. But Alfredo, equally single-minded, exclaims, Ah, it was Baron Dufal, and then he sees the invitation from Flora, and after a cabaletta from Germont that is usually cut, Alfredo rushes away calling for revenge, followed by his father, and by the fall of the curtain for Act Two, Scene One. In some productions, the next scene becomes a separate third act, and the opera is given in four acts rather than Verdi's three. And so we have met the last of the three principal characters, the father, who is often compared with another figure in Verdi's life, his father-in-law, Antonio Barezzi, who was not only the father of Verdi's first young wife, but also the loving and proud benefactor who had made Verdi's career possible. Act two, scene two is at another lavish party, this one complete with a corps de ballet in a Spanish mood, first telling fortunes. <laughs> and then telling the story of a gallant bullfighter. Music that, although perhaps a bit long for the purpose, has the dramatic function of light-hearted contrast with a tension that immediately follows. Before the ballet, the gossip was that Violetta had broken with Alfredo and would come to the party with Baron Dufault. But to the surprise of everyone, after the dancers leave and the card playing begins, it is Alfredo who arrives alone and seemingly nonchalant. The gambling music begins with a quiet but persistent and almost neurotic tension, and Flora welcomes Violetta and Baron Dufault. Baron Dufal sees Alfredo at once and warns Violetta not to say a word to him, not a word, non un detto, followed by a flowing, anguished aside from Violetta. Ah, why did I come? God have pity on me. An aside that is heard twice more with slight variations that match the increasing tension and, as Budden points out, enables Violetta to dominate the scene with only a few words. 
Alfredo keeps on winning at cards and says he will soon have enough money to leave with the woman who ran away from him. Baron Dufall, although Violetta tries to restrain him, challenges Alfredo at cards. He loses higher and higher stakes to Alfredo until dinner summons everyone away. But Violetta returns, having asked Alfredo to meet her. With the orchestra underlining her near hysteria, she begs him to leave, and finally she says she has sworn to avoid him, sworn to one who has every right. To Dufall? She forces herself to say yes. You love him? Very well, I love him. With furious music, Alfredo calls the guests back, tells them this woman spent all she had on him. He is now cleansing himself of the stain, and he flings his winnings at Violetta, who faints in the arms of Flora. The guests are horrified and are joined in their denunciation of Alfredo by a late arrival, surprisingly, Giorgio Germont. Violetta revives and in a flowing melody pours out her regret that Alfredo cannot understand all the love in her heart. which introduces a powerful ensemble. Alfredo bitterly reproaches himself for his cruelty. Baron Dufall challenges him to a duel. Germont laments that he must keep silent. Flora and the others pity Violetta and see with soaring and heart-rending music praise that Alfredo will not suffer from remorse when he learns the truth. begin this last act, Verdi again uses only 16 violins divided, playing almost exactly the same delicate theme that began the prelude to act one, and before the first words are spoken, the number of violins will slowly be reduced to only two, playing double pianissimo. The curtain has been up since the beginning of the prelude, with a nightlight burning, Violetta in bed asleep, and Anina asleep in a chair. As dawn approaches, Violetta wakes and asks for a sip of water. The faithful Dr. Granville arrives and questions Violetta. She tells him she is in pain, but a priest has comforted her spirit. Granville tells her she is mending, but to Anina on his way out, he says only a few hours are left. It's Mardi Gras, and Violetta sends Anina out with half their small sum of money for the poor. Then, as two violins tenderly play Di Quell'Amore, she reads a letter from Germont. Alfredo is abroad after wounding Dufal in the duel, but knows everything and is coming back, as will Germont. In some performances she begins by reading, but soon recites the letter by heart. She has read it so often, and they are still not with her. 
With the remarkable simplicity that is frequently characteristic of Verdi, but especially so in La Traviata, a plaintive oboe and soft strings accompany Violetta as she says she has no hope. Goodbye to the past and its smiling dreams. Adio del passato. As the aria continues, she weeps over the absence of Alfredo, her comfort and support, conforto, sostegno, and she prays, Smile, O Lord, smile on the wish of La Traviata, della Traviata, the only time the word is used in the opera, pardon and receive her. Now everything, tutto, tutto, has finished. Adio del Passato has been called, and I think rightly, one of the most moving of all arias. Adio del Passato is followed immediately and effectively by extreme contrast, the raucous street music of carnival making the poignancy all the greater. Now, Anina and a tense crescendo in the orchestra announce the arrival at last of Alfredo. They had once planned for the future as Alfredo begins a simple, graceful duet, Parigi Ocara. We'll leave Paris and live together. You will regain your health and be rewarded for your sufferings. An echo of another duet of vain longing for a future elsewhere, Ai Nostri Monti, the mountains of Spain in Il Trovatore. Violetta wants to dress to give thanks in church, but Alfredo sees her go pale, and her desperate struggling is reflected in the orchestra. 
Finally, she realizes the truth. If the return of Alfredo can't save her, nothing can. Gran Dio, morir si giovine, great God, to die so young, to die so close to ending my many tears. Now Germont arrives. He also finally sees the truth and is struck by remorse. Violetta gives Alfredo a picture, a miniature of herself. Take, prendi questa l'immagine and tells him over his anguished objections, it's for the maiden he will one day marry, a gift from someone praying for her in heaven. As she sings, the orchestra speaks with deadly premonition. and Alfredo, Germont, Anina, and Dr. Granville all know how swiftly, how inexorably death is approaching. But as two violins play the Qualamor, Violetta suddenly rises and says, Strange, my pain is gone. She sings, My strength is reborn, rinasce, life is returning, O oh, gioia, her last word. was Peter Allen talking about La Traviata, which is on the Met stage now, featuring Sonia Yoncheva, Michael Fabiano, and Thomas Hampson. Performances run through April 14th, and you can also see it live in HD on March 11, 2017. For more information, or to find your nearest theatre, visit metopera.org slash hdlive. I'm Naomi Baratera, and I will be back March 22nd with a pre-performance lecture on Mozart's Idomeneo. Thank you so much for listening.